so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the Digital Public Square, a podcast of the Research Institute of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission about ethics, theology, and philosophy in today's society. I'm your host, Jason Thacker, and I serve here as a senior fellow in Christian ethics. Each week, I'm joined by some of society's most influential thinkers, writers, and leaders to talk about the important ideas shaping our society today, as well as some of the top issues of life in the digital public square. Our goal with this podcast is to equip you to navigate these issues with biblical wisdom and insight. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology, as well as life in the digital public square. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. In this episode, I'm joined by Bethany Allen of Axios to talk about her new book, Beijing Rules, How China Weaponized Its Economy to Confront the World from HarperCollins. Today, we discuss the growing and global influence of China alongside the rise of authoritarian capitalism around the world. Bethany serves as the China reporter at Axios and leads the weekly Axios China newsletter covering China's role in the world. She was previously a staff editor and contributing reporter at Foreign Policy Magazine, where she wrote investigations, deeply reported narratives, and analysis related to China. She's currently based in Taipei. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Bethany, thank you so much for joining us today here on the Digital Public Square. I'm really excited about this conversation, one, because we're having you back on the podcast. A couple of years ago, we had you on the podcast right before the Beijing Winter Olympics, and we're able to talk about kind of the role of China, especially the Olympics and some of the controversies that were flowing from that. But now we're having you back on the podcast to talk about your new book, Beijing Rules, How China Weaponized Its Economy to Confront the World. Uh, This is a really interesting book that I highly recommend listeners picking up because it kind of dives into what has been and probably will be soon a very reported on, very well-known conversation that we're having about the role of China in the world. It's interesting, while we're recording this podcast, there are so many other global events going on. Uh, that you don't see kind of headline coverage about exactly what the Chinese Communist Party, as well as China itself, is doing around the world, even part of the conversations that we're having about what's going on in the Middle East and even in Russia and Ukraine. But nevertheless, this is a really important volume, so I'm excited to dive into it. But before we dive into it, I want to get a little bit of your background and your story and kind of what led up to writing a book like this. It's always fun to have authors on to talk a little bit about the story. Um, in which the book came about. And so I'd love to hear a little bit of your background and why you wanted to write this book. Sure. Um, well, I'm also just really pleased to be able to join the podcast again. And thank you for having me on. So I, I was in in the, the first you know several years of my journalism career, I was in a somewhat unique position in that I was based in Washington, D.C., but I was covering China. And in fact, Though I lived in China previously for four years, I wasn't a journalist then. So all of my journalism career, at least initially, 
was all in DC, all covering China. Now, uh, because so many journalists have been kicked out of China and because China is just so important, there are now quite a number of journalists covering China from outside of China. But at the time and for a number of years, I was kind of the only one or, you know, I don't want to say literally the only one, but, you know, there, there just weren't other people doing that. And there weren't really techniques for doing that either. You know, there was this traditional division within newsrooms of you have domestic political reporters who cover the domestic situation, you know, in like the U.S., and then you have foreign correspondents who cover like what's happening. They're in China and they're covering what's inside of China. But there wasn't this other space of covering China from outside of China or doing what I was started doing, which is covering what China is doing beyond China's own borders. So I became a journalist in 2014. And in late 2017 and then going on into 2018 and 2019, I started doing a series, an investigative series on China's covert political interference in the United States and um, China's, the, you know, the Chinese government's repression of people beyond its borders. And it was a really interesting time to be doing that because this was right at the very, very beginning of the Trump administration's pivot to a tougher policy on China, which means that there was a ton of interest in my reporting from inside the U.S. government, whereas, you know, maybe if I'd done it a few years earlier, there just wouldn't have been because that's not where the, the attention of, you know, the bite of the Obama administration was. So anyway, so I was writing a lot about this, looking at these, you know, all these different kinds of ways that China projects power beyond its borders, especially in a more kind of quiet or covert way. But I was a bit unsatisfied with the way that we were talking about about this. Um, there was this sort of vague word of influence, you know, China's influence. Well, what does that mean? It's such a vague word. And so for several years, I was I spent you know a lot of time really thinking about this and really looking at the body of knowledge, what we knew about what China was doing. And I came to feel that it was China's economy that the Chinese Communist Party used the power of China's economy to project so much of its geopolitical influence and that its economy really was the foundation of so much else of what it was doing. So I, I wanted to take this idea and really explore it and see how exactly has the Chinese government used its economy? And you know what I came to, just in, in short, what I came to, how I came to frame it was that the, you know, Beijing has, has created these really quite innovative ways to very selectively allow or deny access to its markets, its investments, and its capital in order to shape the decision-making of governments, companies, multilateral institutions, and people around the world to bring them in line with the Chinese Communist Party's core interests. And that kind of power is really the launching pad still for the rest of China's power. I think for many listeners, when they hear of China or the Chinese Communist Party in particular, there's typically a few news stories that kind of come above the fray. I mean, we live in an information economy in many ways oversaturated. We have more information than we can ever hope to process. And that's even today, we see that just breaking news story after breaking news story after breaking news story. Every once in a while, though, I think for listeners, we kind of hear, oh, yeah, the Chinese Communist Party, or we hear something about Uyghur Muslims, or we hear something about Taiwan, or we hear something about Hong Kong. And I think for a lot of listeners, there can be a kind of an apathy toward 
what's going on, especially around the world and especially with China's kind of influence. And I know that's kind of a vague word, as you said, but the way that China shapes so much of the political economy and the global economy as well. I want to see, can you tell us a little bit of the background? Like how did China come to be the China of today? It wasn't the China of always in terms of kind of global influence, especially in kind of an economic powerhouse. Can you tell us a little bit of the background and kind of what led up to that influence? Sure. Yeah. So for the first 30 years of the People's Republic of China, you know, it was China's very insular looking. It was the, the, you know, the pure communist era collectivizing the farms, very, very severe poverty. Everybody was poor. After 1978, that began the period of reform and opening when uh, the Chinese government under Deng Xiaoping gradually began opening the economy, gradually transitioning it from a centrally planned economy to a more market-based framework, more market-based uh, economy. And that really took off, started taking off in the 1990s. That's when China first began having these dramatically high growth rates, you know, double-digit growth rates for years. And then uh, in the early 2000s, holding it at an 8% growth rate. And just to give you a, a little bit of a sense of the size of what we're talking about, in 1997, China's economy was about one-tenth the size of the U.S. economy. And today, depending on your metric, it could be, you could say it's about three quarters the size of the U.S. economy, or in some metrics may have already surpassed it. So for example, purchasing power parity, maybe it's already surpassed it. But the point is, it's, it's very, very large, second largest economy in the world. And it did that through basically becoming the uh, factory of the world, you know, tons and tons of manufacturing and export-based economy. As we know now, a not insignificant amount of industrial espionage and, uh, you know, just opening markets, increasing trade uh, around the world. And in the past 10 years, we've seen a big emphasis under Xi Jinping on transitioning the economy to a higher quality. You know, so just a, a more advanced manufacturing and also now really a huge emphasis on becoming leaders in emerging technologies, AI, quantum computing, fields like this. So that's that's really how things stand, right? This year, what we've well last year with their very extreme zero COVID policy, and this year we we're starting to see, or we have seen a, a pretty dramatic economic slowdown. And it, I think it's fair to say at this point that China's economic miracle, where it was able to maintain these incredibly high growth rates for so long, has pretty much ended. And probably we're going to be expecting more moderate um, GDP growth from here on out as China tries to really accomplish that transition from a manufacturing base to a, a higher quality input kind of economic base. I want to pick up on one thing that you kind of mentioned already and see if you can kind of focus and expand on a little bit. Um, but the way that China leverages its economy, we've talked about that, whether it's kind of in the technology industry, seeking to be kind of global leaders in AI, quantum computing, manufacturing, but especially in kind of the exportation. I mean, it's really interesting. Just a few months ago, I was talking to some of our leaders at our local church. We were talking about installing some security cameras. And I said, hey, what brand are we thinking to use? I kind of am familiar with some of this. It was interesting how many and how much of, especially the technology industry, how many components are either made and assembled in China or developed by Chinese firms. And you start to see the way just kind of the influence. And obviously there's back doors. There's a lot of kind of questions. There's the 2017 law that kind of allowed the Chinese Communist Party to have full access to many of the data centers or complete access to the data centers there in Beijing and around China. 
what are some of the ways out even outside of the technology industry that China is able to leverage that kind of economic behemoth that has been created, especially the market there in China, to kind of wield its influence around the world in ways that we may not even expect? Yeah, well, the basic principle here is that the Chinese government has communicated very clearly, loudly, and consistently for about 25 years now that for anyone or any company or any government with, with economic interests in China in some fashion, that if they take an action or say something that clearly crosses the Chinese Communist Party red line, that access could very, very swiftly be cut off, costing them a lot of money. The earliest example, the earliest big example that we really know about is from 1997. It's a very now commonly known, widely known example of Hollywood. There were two movies that were produced, that were released in 1997 about Tibet. Tibet being a famous Chinese Communist Party red line, you know, Beijing hates the Dalai Lama. And these two movies cast Tibet in a very sympathetic light as, a, you know, cast Tibetans as victims, essentially, of Chinese military aggression. One of the movies was Seven Years in Tibet with Brad Pitt, produced by Columbia TriStar. The other movie was Kundun by uh, Martin Scorsese for Disney. And what happened was both of those companies got immediately banned from the Chinese market. And that was like an earthquake across Hollywood. And in the past 26 years, ever since then, there has not been one, not one major Hollywood film that has crossed any CCP red line. No presenting the Chinese military in a bad light. Um, no, you know, talk about Taiwan as an independent or you know, de facto independent country. Certainly no movie about Uyghurs or Tibetans or you know, big feature films about Chinese human rights issues, nothing like that. That's especially extraordinary considering that, as, as I mentioned, 1997, the Chinese, China's economy was only about one-tenth the size of the U.S., so not, not the powerhouse that it is today. But even more astonishing is that the Chinese box office in 1997 was so small as to be negligible. So Disney and Columbia TriStar did not lose any money by not having those films shown in China. And uh, they weren't going to be losing any money anytime soon by not getting future films shown in China. But what happened was the perception of what the Chinese market, the Chinese box office might be like in the future, you know, 1.3 billion people or whatever it was in 1997, whatever the population was, one day they're all going to be box office goers. One day there's going to be vast riches to be made in the Chinese market. And just the imagination of those future riches was enough to silence Hollywood for the past 26 years. I like to give that example because I think it demonstrates the power of how people think about the Chinese market even 25 years ago. And, and you know, now multiply that by a lot. <laughs> and how many, how much, how many fortunes really are to be made in the Chinese market now? And, and it's easy to see how the Chinese government has been able to weaponize that to extend uh, its interests around the world. So what we've seen is that you know this kind of pressure has been applied again and again and again. One of the most successful PR campaigns in history. There is not, you know, at every single CEO, every company in the world with interests in China knows that if they do the wrong thing or say the wrong thing, that they will lose millions or dozens of millions or even hundreds of millions of dollars instantly or they or they face a very high risk of that. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, recently here in the United States, you've seen a kind of a big push for data privacy. 
Um, we've been seeing a push for federal legislation. We don't know if that's going to happen anytime soon, but that's something that's on the mind of a lot of people. And it was really interesting when Apple recently uh, started kind of this privacy campaign, which was really fascinating, especially in many parts of the West. There was a push for personal privacy, how privacy is a human right. And then interestingly enough, how the marketing was very different, especially in China, because of the lack of privacy. And it was interesting. It's a human right in one context, but in other contexts, it's not so much. And so that idea of kind of standing up for particular principles or particular ideas, especially against such a very large and influential Chinese Communist Party is interesting, to say the least, especially kind of as you already mentioned that many CEOs throughout the West, throughout the world, really know what it means if they stand up to a Beijing um, and push back against certain policies or stand up for certain principles and rights. And we've seen that with Uyghur Muslims, which we'll get to here in a little bit, and even the NBA and a lot of the controversy surrounding that. But it's interesting because one of the things you do in this book, and I think many of us kind of have these visceral memories of kind of that day in March, especially here in the United States with COVID. And kind of the outbreak of COVID, we started to see it kind of go across the world, and it really changed everything, every single aspect of our life and our society, uh, for good and for ill. And it's really interesting as we think through kind of the way that COVID influenced and shaped so much of the world today, you kind of open up telling a little bit about that, especially kind of using that as an, an illustrative way to talk about China's influence around the world. Because I remember, you know, that early on, we heard a lot of kind of, quote, conspiracy theories about a Wuhan seafood market and the origins of COVID and how that was quickly kind of squashed, especially in the popular imagination. And then coming back to that story of saying, maybe there actually is something to that. And maybe this is kind of the origin of COVID itself. Can you help us to understand some of the ways that even the Chinese Communist Party sought to kind of influence and shape kind of the, the conversation even around COVID and how that really illustrates the way that they're able to shape so much of the conversation about a host of conversations around the world through that control of information and the way that it's seen throughout much of the world today. Yeah, they used, uh, the, the CCP used many different ways to try to reshape that narrative about the origins of the coronavirus pandemic. And, and I, you know, say in my book, I, I think that that became essentially a new core interest for them doing their best to eliminate, you know, the idea that the pandemic had begun in China, because in their mind that would challenge the legitimacy of the party and of Xi Jinping himself. And so there were, there were several ways. And one of the most dramatic moves I think was in April, 2020, when then Prime Minister of Australia, Scott Morrison, called for an independent inquiry into the origins of the pandemic. And soon thereafter, the Chinese government slapped a bunch of tariffs on a swath of Australian exports to China, including coal, barley, wine, and, and other products, clearly as a punishment, clearly as retaliatory action for what was a call for you know, a scientific fact-finding mission and free debate. And this is something that relates to the well-being of every person in the world. I mean, every person on the planet was affected by the pandemic. And it's really important for scientists to know as much as they can about where it came from to help maybe try to prevent the next one. But we also saw the first big use of a, a new network of social media accounts, which has come to be known as um, China's wolf warrior diplomacy. So back at the end of 2019, um, there was sort of a, a like a bunch of Chinese diplomats and diplomatic accounts that opened on Twitter. And they began using these accounts to push you know, Chinese propaganda about the pandemic, but also to 
amplified disinformation about the pandemic and you know especially about its origins and we saw um it was very russian style in fact that it wasn't it was no longer focusing on a single immutable narrative about china's just very nice and we should all just trust it which is previously what chinese propaganda was like it was pushing multiple and even conflicting theories about where the covid pandemic had originated oh it was planted by the by the us military in wuhan no no it came from a us military lab in maryland no no it came from us built biolab facilities in ukraine you know this this kind of thing and so you saw these diplomatic accounts like amplifying this amplifying this big lie that it had not originated in china and then there was you know there was true disinformation that was like covert so it, it it's bubbling up from the internet and it's not necessarily being tweeted by chinese diplomats but it's kind of you know it's inorganically being pushed um and that was new as well for the for the chinese government to be using disinformation covert online disinformation in that way targeting the rest of the world and we also saw with later with vaccines something something similar where the chinese government policy in line was our vaccines are better our vaccines are cheaper our vaccines are more available for the rest of the world we're the more responsible and reliable global partner in addition to the official messaging on that there was also official amplification of conspiracy theories and disinformation about western made mrna vaccines pfizer and moderna vaccines that were because they're from a, a newer technology are were more effective than the chinese made vaccines which were using an older technology and also um disinformation about the safety of these vaccines uh you know trying again to bolster china's global reputation it's interesting especially you kind of mentioned a lot of kind of that misinformation disinformation campaign i remember just last year actually i tweeted something about some human rights violations in china and almost immediately i received a just a host of uh messages from very obviously very kind of pro ccp accounts on twitter that weren't connected officially by any means um but it was this kind of guerrilla almost kind of warfare information warfare that was taking place of saying oh you think things are bad here have you even seen what's happening in your own nation what about this what about this what about this and it was really interesting kind of this what aboutism campaign that was going on but it's interesting to me that also spoke to a larger reality because we kind of focused on the way that the ccp wants to project china throughout the world there's also kind of this if you look inwardly a lot of the chinese people the massive kind of disinformation misinformation campaigns that also kind of happen internally even blocking access from western influence western media news sources even fact based journalism things like that to say and one author years ago wrote about it as the great firewall of china the way that china is very insular in terms of the access that not only people have to the chinese market but also the chinese people the access they have even to certain kind of information can you speak to that a little bit kind of this idea of privacy and individualism and how that isn't really the mantra of much of what's taking place not only kind of in the eastern part of the world but in particular with china this kind of disinformation campaign that's seeking to control people through the access to information that we've long seen throughout the chinese communist party but especially recently of um in many ways kind of helping or kind of uh, engendering a distrust of outside sources outside media and outside influences so i think there's there's two parts here you know the the way that the chinese government approaches its domestic information environment and then their increasingly ambitious goals and strategies for the rest of the world what we're seeing so you know domestically china has they have established you know very firm control over what is available 
on the internet inside of China. And they've done it in spite of so many expectations that they would never be able to do that. The famous line from President you know, Bill Clinton, that internet censorship would be like trying to nail Jello to the wall. Well, China did. <laughs> They're very, very good at it. The best in the world, probably. And so they have a big domestic advantage. Not only that do they have a, a total monopoly over you know, Chinese state media and control of other private media outlets, which means that they can you know, just fill the airwaves with all kinds of propaganda and whatever in- information that they want. They also have the ability to shut down any information that they want, including you know, social media posts in real time and even private chats in real time. It's really it's astonishing, the control that they have. What we're seeing now is that the Chinese government is hoping to export this to the rest of the world to the greatest extent possible. Now, the Chinese government is never going to have control over like the New York Times, you know, or like the Wall Street Journal or the Financial Times. They're never going to have this kind of back end, we're going to go and delete this article from the website. They don't have that kind of control. So it's a, it's a different operating environment. I think this is where they've learned from Russia, which is, you know, very good at disinformation. They've learned that if you can't delete information, you can't get rid of information in circulation, what you do is you fill the information environment with so much doubt and so much chaos that people no longer know what to believe. And that that can be a very powerful tool for drowning out the truth and creating confusion. This is something that Beijing has is working more and more and more at an ongoing goal. And that's you know to try to shift narratives abroad. But something here's something else that we're seeing that's also uh, like totally terrifying is that public security bureaus in various places around China, not just centrally, but you know, in localities, have been um, paying money to build these internal internet surveillance systems targeted at the rest of the world based on AI So, and, and this kind of mass data processing where they can monitor. The idea is to monitor foreign social media in real time, so Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, et cetera, and then when certain narratives that are like you know of interest to China or cast China in bad light start going viral, the idea is that there would then be these um, alerts, real-time alerts that would go to the cell phones of the relevant public security officials. Why? What would they do with those alerts? Presumably, they would then take action. So send you know bots, have kind of these kinds of coordinated campaigns to try to fight that. So it's it's exporting part of the you know mass internet surveillance structures that exist in China. And in China there's also these bot armies, you know they call them umao traditionally, 5 cent armies, 50 cent armies, but that go in and so you're not just deleting posts, you're also drowning them out with really positive posts or whatever. You touched on also this question of privacy. Now, here's something really interesting. The Chinese government has been making a big push about privacy. In fact, they just, I think last year, passed a, a sweeping data privacy law. You know, And what do they mean when they say privacy? What does the Chinese government mean? It doesn't mean nothing. They're not just like throwing out a random word with no meaning, but it means something different than what we talk about like in the US. In the US, when we say data privacy, what we mean is uh, a user can determine or can at least know and preferably have some degree of control over who sees or who owns or who can deal with their information, whether that is a government actor or other private companies. There's basically no distinction. It doesn't matter who that actor is. It means that individual users have some knowledge or control about how their data is being used. 
In China, however, the word data privacy mean only refers to the company aspect of it. So what does data privacy, if, if China, the Chinese government says they're passing laws strengthening data privacy to protect consumers, are they lying? No, they really are passing laws that help protect consumers against companies who try to steal their data, abuse their data, use their data without their permission, etc. But what it, what the, the flip side of the coin in China means that these privacy laws have very specific, they're creating other forms of zero privacy, which is to say total transparency on behalf of the government. There is no privacy in China between the government and the consumer. The government has an immediate and direct line to consumer data, and they're working on making those lines shorter and strengthening them. So that's the difference there. One thing I want to pick up on, and you kind of already referenced it in the ways that the Chinese Communist Party has kind of mimicked or imitated some of kind of the Russian disinformation campaign with Russia being so good at that. I wanted to see if you can kind of speak to some of the kind of the global alliances or at least influences of China, even today, when we think of the Ukraine war and what's happening there with a partnership with Russia, we see this even in the Middle East and other places where Beijing has kind of has an outsized influence of seeking to say, hey, this is a way that we can weaken the West, Uh, we can change the narratives, we can speak to these things, and kind of an alliance that's taking place where a lot of, there's a lot of influence, a lot of power, um, and even a lot of money coming out of China, influencing a lot of the aggression that we're seeing around the world today. What What are some of the ways that China is influencing even some of what's happening with the Ukraine-Russia war, what's happening in the Middle East, what are the ways that we see the CCP's kind of influence on those things as well? Sure. So uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine is a very interesting example. And what we saw was a lot of, now we know, uh, officially coordinated. We didn't know at the time. You can just, it appears to be coordinated. Now we know that there was actually a secret agreement to coordinate. But coordinated messaging on Russia's invasion So with the main goal being blame the West, blame the U.S. So, you know, the the Chinese government, Chinese diplomatic officials, government officials, and, you know, social media accounts, state media talked a lot about, you know, how the U.S. was to blame because of its, you know, supporting NATO and basically NATO is bad, the U.S. is bad. Lots and lots of amplification in support of that from the Chinese side. And we saw also lots and lots of like Russian state media narratives being echoed in Chinese state media, Russian state media backed uh, social media posts. So like, you know, RT and stuff being retweeted by, um, you know, Chinese diplomatic accounts, Chinese official accounts, this kind of thing, this, you know, a sort of this close coordination to amplify Russian narratives justifying their invasion, and then also, of course, disinformation about it, so lies about what was happening. And we've seen the same thing to some extent uh, in a slightly different way, but broader themes are similar relating to the Israel-Hamas war. So China is officially neutral, but (laughs) that's kind of like their position on the Russia-Ukraine war. They're officially neutral, but they're obviously on Russia's side. So uh, same with Israel-Hamas. They're officially neutral, but really leaning Hamas. And and again, we see the same approach, which is blame the U.S. And the, the first few days of the res- of response, you know, Chinese official outlets and things was blame the U.S., blame the U.S. for the Abraham Accords. So, you know, these like peace accords that shut out Palestine, that didn't give Palestine a role. And for U.S., blaming the U.S. for its ongoing support of Israel uh, and, you know, saying that this had contributed to the, to the conflict, etc., 
So using their, you know, their, their messaging in that way. And this, this is, uh, I think in, increasingly there's, there's a, I think an increasingly kind of coherent, both strategy and narrative here between like China and, and Russia and then smaller players, which is, you know, we're not the West We're we're over here. The West is over there. They're our enemy. We have increasing confidence. We support each other more and more and more. And we're going to, we're going to, you know, amplify each other's narratives and repeat each other's narratives more and more and more so we can push back together with a louder voice. And we saw that with Ukraine. We see that with, you know, Israel Hamas war. Why does China have a position? Why do they care? Because among other reasons, they know that by supporting, by, by not condemning Hamas, Chinese government has not condemned Hamas as a terrorist organization or condemned them by name for their um, slaughter of Israeli civilians. Why? Uh, because China sees it as a good opportunity to curry favor among Arab states, which is, you know, again, trying to strengthen this block in a, a, against the U.S., trying to marginalize the U.S. in the Middle East. Uh, it's also good for China economically to have stronger ties with these countries. Uh, China gets about 50% of its oil. China's the largest uh, energy importer in the world. They get about 50% of their oil from the Middle East. There's an economic component to it as well. Yeah, there's so much that's fascinating here. If you kind of start to unpack a lot of the ways that the economy drives so much of global politics today, especially with what you've illustrated here in the volume. One thing I do want us to focus on really quickly and kind of getting an update in some sense, especially with the way the the news has shifted over the recent years. At one time, we heard a lot about the Uyghur Muslims um, and what was happening in Xinjiang, but recently we haven't heard as much. And there's lots of reasons for that, obviously. A lot of what we've been speaking about, kind of global conflicts, COVID, all of these different things. I wanted to see if there's any kind of update of kind of what's happening. What do we know about what's happening among the Uyghur Muslims, these concentration-like camps, a lot of the human rights violations that we see there? What do we know about kind of the general state, not only of uh, Uyghur Muslims, but even of religious freedom within the Chinese state? Well, uh, just super briefly to touch on some of the reasons that we haven't heard much about them in recent years was uh, a big one is that during COVID, I mean, probably the main one is that during COVID, it was just so difficult to get information out of Xinjiang. You know, people were not coming and going. Uyghurs were not coming and going. Not that they really were. They were all locked away. But Kazakhs, you know, Chinese Kazakhs weren't coming and going. There was just, it was so much, it was so much harder to get information out of a place that it was already incredibly hard to get information out of. Second is that the Chinese government changed tack a bit. And what it started doing was moving uh, some percentage or some number of of the detainees in mass internment camps over into the China's official prison system, moving them in, you know, sending them to a a court where they get a sentence and they go off to an actual prison. And that's much harder to track. Uh, Certainly those court records are not necessarily public. And um, there's not, you know, if China's existing prison system already exists, which means that if you send Uyghurs into different prisons, you know, you can't, you can't, there's no satellite imagery you can use to track those people. Uh, and I think that China's big mistake, you know, if it wants to be able to hide a genocide, was building a bunch of, you know, facilities specifically for this, because that was, that was really how we figured out the scale of it, it was by looking at the you know, satellite images. So they moved away to some to some extent from sort of a, a mass you know internment type system, although that is you know still in place to some extent. What we do know, just from a few you know reporters that been, have been able to make trips, is that 
things still don't look good. Things are still, there's still, you can't go around and report freely. It's extremely difficult to talk to people because reporters are being trailed all the time. People are afraid to talk to them. There still seem to be large, you know, numbers of missing Uyghurs, just their homes are just empty. Like, where are they? So a lot of question marks there. And I think that's why we haven't heard about it as much because it's hard, you know, the news runs on what's new. And if you don't know what's new, then it's hard to write articles about it. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons that I wanted to bring it up is just to kind of re-highlight that, especially among our listeners to say, hey, this issue still matters, even though we're not hearing a lot about it. And there's so many other narratives, so many other conflicts, so much going on, not to forget about what's actually taking place among the Uyghurs and hoping to learn something in, in the coming times of what's actually taking place there, especially as we stand for religious freedom uh, around the world, uh, not just here in the West, but really around the world. Bethany, one thing I wanted to do as we end our podcast today is to talk a little bit about some future resources. I think for a lot of people, a book like this can be really eye-opening to help them understand the way that Beijing really rules, um, to use your title there, the, the power, the influence, the, the shaping power of China, especially around the world. Um, but outside of this volume, I wanted to see, are there other resources that you'd recommend, even kind of histories of saying, hey, how did we get here? One of the things I always try to encourage my students is to recognize that nothing happens in a vacuum. Uh, that there is a backstory. There's always something that took place that necessitated or at least allowed for various things to take place today. Can you help us to understand a little bit of the background, some other resources that you think would be helpful as we start to think about the kind of the rising and kind of ex ever expanding influence of the Chinese Communist Party around the world? Sure. So I can recommend, first of all, some books. So uh, one of my favorite, favorite books uh, in recent years is called China's Civilian Army by Peter Martin, who's a Bloomberg reporter. And the subtitle there is The Rise of China's Wolf Warrior Diplomacy. I love that book. It's so interesting. It's basically kind of a retelling of Chinese, of modern Chinese history through the foreign ministry or through through its diplomats. And what I love about it is that Peter really paints a very human portrait of China's diplomats. You know, how did they get to a place where they're saying these outrageous things? You know, why do they do this? What are the factors that are shaping their work environment? And one of the ones that he mentions is just the, the intense scrutiny and pressure and suspicion that Chinese diplomats have long faced in China, especially when the political situation there is worse rather than better because they're viewed as inherently suspicious, because they spend time outside of China, because their job is to talk to foreigners and foreign government officials. So they're under a ton of pressure, you know, where they, they could lose their jobs, they could face prison sentences, whatever. So it's really, it's really interesting and, you know, gives us some of the reasons for why some these very aggressive statements we see from China these days. Another uh, good book is called Party of One by Wall Street Journal reporter Chun Han Wang. And that is about the rise of Xi Jinping and how he turned China's Communist Party into Party One, uh, you know, basically a cult of personality around him as the core. And that's, you know, he really is totally key to understanding where China is in 2023 and the forces that now are shaping not just China, but really shaping the rest of the world as we kind of, you know, reposition all of our chess pieces around China as well. Um, let's see. This is a, an academic book, but it's by Isabella Weber, who is, I believe, a German economist or political economist called How China Escaped Shock Therapy. Very, also very, very important. 
So shock therapy, if you're not familiar with it, is this idea. So after the fall of the Berlin Wall, after the end of the Cold War, there were all these post-Soviet states who were like wanted to transition out of communist uh, economic rule. And so the shock therapy was this was this sort of the, the reigning like you know orthodoxy of how to do this in the 90s, uh, where you immediately get rid of all price controls, you immediately privatize all the state-owned industries, you get rid of subsidies, and you open it up, open the country up to international trade. You lift tariffs and things like that. You let there be free trade, and this the idea was to shock the economy into creating a free market. Um, and this was later realized, later um, discovered to be a total failure. What it it, it caused, um, well, the rise of Putin basically, because it it just it caused mass unemployment and mass corruption and created you know kleptocrats at the top. But China didn't did not China refused to go down that path. And so it talks about you know how the Chinese government gradually tra- did transition its economy and how they went in the face of prevailing Western economic theory at the time. So strongly recommend that for anyone who's interested in how China's economy got to where it is today. Well, we'll make sure to link to all of those resources here in the show notes, along with your book, Beijing Rules, How China Weaponized Its Economy to Confront the World. But I think I really appreciate your work. I'm really glad to have you back on the podcast today. Grateful for the ways that you're approaching these things and helping to kind of keep us up to speed and up to date on what's happening around the world, especially there in China. Um, but really grateful for your work and grateful to have you today here on the podcast. Well, thanks so much for having me back, Jason. Well, from all of us here at the Digital Public Square, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, would you consider leaving us a review at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also to share the word about the podcast with others. As a reminder, you can connect with Bethany and learn more about her new book, Beijing Rules, as well as the recommended resources we talked about in the show notes. Also, make sure to sign up to receive the weekly check email briefing that comes out each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology in the public square today, as well as to stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can subscribe at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. The Digital Public Square is a production of the Research Institute at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is produced and hosted by Jason Thacker. Production assistance is provided by Caden Christian and technical production by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Thank you, and I hope you have a great week.